0: This week uh, we're continuing our study through Luke. We're in Luke chapter 11. We're starting in verse 29. If you have a Bible, you can uh, uh, you can turn there now. And um, it's kind of a long passage, uh, so I, I thought about we could spend several weeks on this passage, but I figured let's just uh, hit it all in one. So it's gonna it, it'll it might take a couple minutes for me to read. We're going to the end of the chapter to verse 54. So, um, let's uh, read together. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment, with the men of this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not... First, wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, "Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not... Uh, touch the burdens with one of your fingers, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you built their, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and, and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel uh, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say, "Let's pray together." <clears> our <throat> oh Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for a difficult texts uh, in your Word. So we ask that you'd be our teacher, and we ask that you would take this Word that was written two thousand years ago, and would you make it relevant to our lives now? That you would shape our own hearts, shape our families, shape our lives and our relationships by it. And we pray that you would show us Jesus, and that we would trust and rest in Him alone. For our salvation and for all things and it's in His name we pray. Amen. So uh, this is you know this is kind of a long it's kind of a cryptic passage we're looking at a lot of uh, strange things going on. I'm not going to uh, be able to um, uh, unpack everything that was in that passage um, but one of the things that we um, uh, see throughout Jesus' ministry is that it's quite possible to have a life that is full of, uh, you know, church and Bible reading and uh, religious activities, religious even devotion, and yet uh, is nowhere near following Jesus. That following Jesus and a religious life are actually two radically different things. He sees them as two uh, um, actually opposite things. And uh, and that gen- so that generally in our church, you know, if you've been here for for long, you, you may have heard me use that word religion. Actually, this is the way that the Bible uses the word religion. is generally a negative term. That religion is a way of telling God, I don't need you. Religion is a way of telling God, I don't need you. And so following Jesus, trusting Jesus is something very different. And so uh, what we're going to do is we kind of look through this passage. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. We're just going to answer uh, two things. First of all, what is religion? What is a religious life? And secondly, how is trusting in Jesus, um, having faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, how is that something different than religion? So uh, well, we're going to look at those two things, and, and in the process hopefully the Holy Spirit will be pointing our hearts to find out that trusting in Jesus is really actually good news. Religion is not good news, but Jesus is good news. So uh, first... Uh, what is religion? Okay, and I'll tell you in this point, I'm going to spend kind of a lot of time in this point, and my goal in it is to create a disgust in you uh, for religion. Okay, so uh, because, you know, as you, as, you, um, uh, as, you, as you look at Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels, you find um, that there, most people Jesus didn't get really angry with. You know, so you know, if you think of the, the story of the woman at the well in John 4, it's this woman. She's had five husbands. She's living with a guy. He's not her husband. Jesus meets her, and you know, Jesus confronts her sin and talks to her about her sin. But he's not angry at her. He's quite compassionate. He's gentle. He talks to her. He has a relationship with her, and um, he doesn't. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't have this rage at her. This anger at her. Um, or you know, you look in uh, uh, Luke nineteen. Uh, Luke meets uh, uh, Zacchaeus. You know, wee little Zacchaeus, who I. Uh, He's a tax collector, he's an extortionist, he's uh, basically robbing people of money, threatening people. I mean, he's a bad guy, and uh, Jesus tells him to repent, confronts him of his sin, but he's not angry. There's a warmth, there's a welcome, there's an invite, uh, inviting uh, nature about him. I mean, you know, of course, Jesus, you know, when the, the marginalized, the poor, the, the weak, the blind, the lame, they come to him, he's welcoming, he's compassionate. Um, and you know, I you know, one thing that's even shocking to me is I you look at Pontius Pilate, how Jesus interacts. You know, Pontius Pilate, who's going to hand Jesus over, the Son of God, over to be crucified. Jesus is quite warm towards him. You know, he talks to him about the truth. They have an exchange. There's not this anger towards him. But there's one group of people that stirs up a ra- really a rage, a wrath, an anger in Jesus, and it's religious people. It's and primarily religious leaders. And, uh, and, you know, that's where Jesus' real zingers about, you know, you know how are you going to escape the condemnation of hell? Uh, and we see some of them in, in this passage. His real uh, sharpest words come towards religious people. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. He does, you know, in this passage we see that um, uh, in verse 37 it says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined and so you know Pharisees they were the, uh, the you know the dominant religious uh, party in Jesus day of the Jews and uh, they were very meticulous in their following of God's law and Jewish tradition and they invite Jesus to have a meal and Jesus doesn't say no I don't hang out with you he goes and he has me you know having a meal with someone in Jesus day was a sign of fellowship and a sign of reconciliation and I want to be in fellowship with you I want to know you so, Jesus loves religious people, but um, he gets. Uh, but part of his love is by um, jarring them out of their religious life. He wants to jar them. And so, in this passage, Jesus gives them four woes, where he says, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe, uh, four woes, and we're going to kind of look at those, and each one will, will tell us something about the nature of religion and tell us what religion is. So, first, uh, Jesus says that religion is external. Uh, It's purely external. Uh, Look at verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And the, fra- the phrase I want to focus in on there is, Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And uh, what Jesus um, is saying is that what God wants to do in our lives, and the transformation that he wants to see in our lives, is not just simply something in our actions, and kind of what people can see that we're doing, but he wants to transform our hearts. And you can see that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the fraction of the kind of intentions, the things that are happening in our heart that actually uh, manifest themselves, actually come out in the things that we do are quite small, right? If you think of all the envy, uh, bitterness, uh, um, you know, judgmental spirit that we have in our house. You know, think of every judgmental thought you have, uh, bitter thought, envious thought you have. How many of them actually come out... W- turn out for you to actually say something or doing something. You know, maybe one in 50, right? Maybe maybe one in 100, I don't know. I mean, very few actually squeak out because, you know, we wouldn't have very many friends if, if everything that was in our hearts came out. We, uh, so so very, very, uh, very few comes out. And so what that gives us the illusion is when we're only dealing with the outside, that's a lot easier to deal with, right? You know, is. I've got to deal with one, i got to change one thing compared to 50 or 100 things on the inside. It's much simpler. I just got to change what's, what I'm doing on the outside. There's a lot less to change. And, um, um, and the heart is much more messy. Um, and what Jesus says is that God made your whole person, your thoughts, your heart, everything about you for his glory. And uh, a religious life is not willing to deal with the mess and the complexity and the 50, 100 uh, uh, sinful thoughts that are inside the heart. A religious life just wants to change what is on the outside. And, uh, and you can see that, um, you know, and so a religious life has the externals of going to church, reading the Bible, maybe doing good deeds, working hard, but it does not want to admit, as Jesus puts it to these Pharisees, that inside they are full of greed and wickedness. That's what he says to the religious leaders: is that inside they're full of greed and wickedness. And so we have to ask ourselves: Are we willing um, to face and deal with the real sin that is in our hearts? And you know, I'll, I'll tell you something: our our lives, in the same way that kind of my person has kind of an outside, outer person and an inside person. You know, our lives kind of work that way also, right? We have kind of a public life that we live. That you know, when we we're with our friends, we're at church, we're at work, there's kind of a public life that we have, and then we have also a private life. Um, So, for example, uh, it's generally in your private life where the reality of your heart comes out. So, for example, um, if you have a family, um, generally, if there's, uh, you know, selfishness or bitterness in your heart, it might be, we might catch a glimmer of that here. It might uh, squeak out in some exchange here at church. But the people who are really going to see it are the people that are in your family that you're living with. Well, for one reason, because they're not going to leave you. So you know that, that you can really be yourself around them and they are they're hopefully aren't going to leave you. And so the reality is that um, we have a public life and a private life. And the, the the person that we really are, that God is dealing with, is the person that... that uh, that we see in our private, in our homes, in our families. In fact, that's why if you look at uh, um, Paul's uh, letters, the pastoral letters, where he's talking about uh, church leadership and elders in the church. And he says, listen, if, you're, if you want a, someone to be a leader in the church, don't look at whether they know a lot of theology and read their Bible every day. You know, that stuff's important. But the th- Paul says the thing you want to look at is look at their family. Look at their family life. Look at their children. What do, their children, do their, what do their children think about church and the faith? and, and uh, Do they want nothing to do with it? Um, look at their, the warmth in their relationship with their wife. Is there a warmth? Is there, is there uh, a, a depth there? The real person is not the public person. The real person is the person that's living in the private life. That's who you really are. Let me tell you, that's a hard, uh, that's a hard word for me. I know that. And I know that's a hard, uh, that's a hard word for many of us. That who we really are is not who we are here, but who we are in our private life, in, in our homes, in our families, and with the people that are closest to us. And um, and the point is that religion may change your, your public life and what you look, look like here, but religion will not change that private life and it will not change the inner life. It doesn't face the, 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 the real sin... And the problems that are there, it doesn't. It's not willing to face it. It's only willing to face externals. And so, let me tell you that um, you know part of the process of of transformation, that inner transformation, the inner the transformation of a private life, is to let Jesus into that mess of that heart. And you know, I'll tell you, we've been uh, doing some planning for home groups. You want to know what the vision for home groups is? What we're really hoping is that there would be a place where your heart can be unveiled, and that Jesus through the people in this church could could step into your heart and to know what's really there, and and the real you could come out, and Jesus could, could transform the real you. That's what we're aiming at in home groups. So religion, first of all, is purely external. It doesn't deal with the mess and the darkness that's in our hearts and in our private lives. Second, religion is petty. Um, you know, there's a... Um, a common saying, I, I don't know if you've heard this common saying, that Christians will often say that um, that all sins are the same. I don't know if you've ever heard that. You know, they're all just as bad if you break one. It's kind of the idea, if you break one sin, you break the whole law, so all sins are just as bad I God. Mean, and you know when you're intuitively that there's no way that's true. <laughs> like, if you murder someone, is not as bad as, you know, a kid stealing a piece of candy. Uh, you know, they're both sins, but one's not as bad as the other. It's not true. And actually... Uh, um, you can see that in this passage in uh, in verse forty two, where it says, "But woe to you, Pharisees!" You know that word Pharisee. It, it's we don't know, but likely where that word comes from is, is sharp or accurate. And and it's they're very sharp, very meticulous about their keeping of the law, right? So they they, they very small things in Jewish traditions that they pay pay a lot of attention to. And Jesus says, "Woe to you, Pharisees!" For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And in Matthew's version of this this saying from Jesus, he says that they have neglected the weightier matters of the law. There are certain parts of God's law, things that God says to do, that have more weight than others, that are more important. And... uh, Not all sins are the same. Not all things that we do are just as bad. They do break God's law, and if you break one, you know God's law, then you've offended God. But they're not all the same. And what religious people do is they become very petty about the the things that are important, more important than others. They totally have no intuition for what's what's a a deeper, profounder, uh, more important part of God's law. So they don't have an intuition. See what God wants you to do is he wants you, you know, this Bible doesn't tell us about every situation that you're going to face in your life. It doesn't tell you. So what God wants you to do is to study the Word, to study the Bible, and then go into the world, and you have to use your judgment on what are the good choices to make in the world. You have to use your judgment. You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to use wisdom. And what that means is the world is complex. And so if you've never let God into the complexity of your heart, You are not going to know how to make good judgments in the complexity of the world. And religious people have not let people into the complexity of their heart, and so they don't know how to make good judgments. So here's these religious, these Pharisees, and they're spending all their time, they're in their garden cutting off a piece of mint and in their spice rack, you know, getting a tenth of their spices out to come bring to church as part of their offering. And they're being very meticulous about that, and yet they're neglecting, you know, justice for the poor. A sincere love for God, caring for the and and they they don 't have that that moral intuition of how to make those judgments and you know um you know we went to Shannon and I went to a church some years ago, um which is a church we really loved but um the the time during the time that we were there, this church was going through a a, a big i think it was probably a church of three hundred three fifty and about forty families in in the Course of about a year and a half, left this church. I mean, this church was just being torn apart. I remember while we were there, the elders of the church were having this big debate about whether the bread and communion should have yeast in it or not. It was this big debate that went on for at least a year. Uh, what should we have yeast in the bread? You know, and that's like that's a fine question uh, to ask. Um, think through what does the Bible teach, but you know what? It doesn't have the weight. You have forty families leaving what's going on in here there's something weightier that you need to be spending your time on and that's a fine question to ask but when you have have when you haven't let God into the complexity of your heart you don't know how to gauge those things and a religious person becomes very petty now some of you will hear what I'm saying and say yeah that's right you know I you know all the doctrine details that Christians are always nitpicking about doctrines, let's just get rid of those, let's just love God, love people, let's keep it simple. That's not what Jesus says, by the way. You'll notice that he says, uh, um, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You know, Jesus wants us to care about his word and to think through it, um, but there are some things that have more weight. The real problem with the religious people, you can see this in verse 46, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Part of a religious life is to not just take what God says, but to add all kinds of rules and laws to go beyond what is written. And so we have all kinds of rules that religious people make, and they're very meticulous about them. And they say, if I keep all these things, then they're never really dealing with the heart. So religious life is petty. Religious life is external, And the religious life is petty. Third, religion is conceited. (laughs) Okay? Are we painting a good picture yet? Religion is conceited. Um, If you simply trust in, as Jesus says, you know, cleaning the outside of the cup, not cleaning the inside of the cup, and you, you begin to think of your spiritual life in terms of, you know, God loves me because I do good things. I've done good things. I've been very meticulous. I've been very petty. And, and I've kept all the small rules. Then what you'll do is you'll look down on other people who don't keep the rules as well as you do. It's a very different approach to God to say, God loves me because I'm good, compared to, wow, my heart is a mess and Jesus died for a sinner like me, and God embraces me as a child, I'm surprised, I'm shocked. Those are two radically different views of God. And a religious life that only deals with the outside and says, I'm good, so God loves me, will turn into a conceited life. And um, you can see there, uh, we're going to kind of go through a lot of this text, this scripture. Um, Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace. So what these Pharisees do, you know, greetings in the marketplace or uh, in the marketplace is not like greetings. Like you know, when I say, uh, "Why don't you greet one another?" and then have a seat. It's not like, "Hey, what's up? How's your week?" And it's not that kind of stuff. The greetings in the marketplace is um, the people who are, who were less than them and didn't keep the law as well as them would come with these kind of formal, reverent. Um, uh, you know, greetings and salutations uh, to the religious people, and so they—they they, they, all these good deeds that they're keeping, keeping gave them this sense of superiority above above everyone else, and they loved it when keep, people came and fed their sense of f- superiority and conceit. And uh, you know, it's Jesus tells an interesting story there. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but he talks about Jonah. You remember, you read that in, in the beginning of this passage? He talks about how. Uh, um, the Son of Man is like Jonah, and and there's these kind of parallels between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah, remember the fish? The fish ate Jonah, and he was in the fish for three days, and then he kind of came out of the fish, he came back to life, and it's kind of, Jesus is going to die on the cross, he's going to go in the ground for three days, and then he's going to come back to life. One of the things that's uh, hidden in that discussion about Jonah is the, the story of Jonah is really about how Jonah was a conceited religious person. If you remember the story, you know what Jonah did? Uh, he, uh, God says to Jonah, you know what, I want you to go to Nineveh. Those dirty pagans, uh, they're oppressive, they're you know, sleeping with each other, they're, uh, they're dirty, irreligious people. I want you to go and tell them that I'm, I'm going to destroy them. Now, when, G- when God does that, that's actually code word for, I'm, I want to give you a second chance. When God tells you I'm going to destroy you, that means I want to give you a second chance. Repent. So he's giving, he wants to give the Ninevites a second chance. And Jonah says, no thanks. And he goes the other direction to Tarshish. And, you know, he's on the ship. And they throw him in the water. And the fish eats him. And then the fish throws him back up. And then he, uh, you know, he kind of repents. And he says, all right, I'll go to Nineveh. He goes and he tells Nineveh, you know, God, 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And you know what they do? They say, We're sorry. They repent. The dirty pagans repent. They say, we want, we want to know God. We don't want you to destroy us. We want to be on your side. And in chapter 4 of Jonah, you know what Jonah says? You know what? That's why I didn't come here in the first place. You know, and God relents. He doesn't destroy them. He says, that's why I didn't go there. You know why I went to Tarshish? Just because I knew that if I went to those dirty pagans, you were just going to forgive me. You're such a softy, God. Um, and I'm a, re- I'm a good religious person. And now you're going and you're giving your grace to these people who haven't, done, haven't loved you, they haven't served you, they haven't read their Bibles, they haven't been to church, they're oppressive, they're sleeping with one another, and you want to just go and give you their grace. I knew you were going to do that. Because he had this deep sense of superiority over them. And this is what, this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 32 again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They knew. They said, we're sinners. We're sorry. Have mercy on us. And God did. They got it. And that's what Jonah didn't get, and that's what the religious people don't get. And that's how religious people become conceited. So here we have that a religious life is external, petty, and conceited. And when you wrap all that together, you get the last woe that uh, religion... (laughs) Is life sucking? Religion is life sucking. That was a good. I was proud of that word choice. Life, life sucking. Um, now there, you know, there are many forms of uh, of the religious life. You know, there's a Christian version of a religious life. There's a Jewish version, a Muslim version. There's the environmentalist version of the religious life, and there's the kind of Eastern version, the Buddhist version uh, of a religious life. And I. I when I was in St. Louis, I, I maybe shared this story with you. Uh, uh, I met a guy, he was a Buddhist, and we, we met at a coffee shop, and we were, we were talking about God. And and he he had, you know, kind of two groups of friends, groups of friends who were Christians and then groups of friends who were Buddhists. And uh, I don't know how we got to talk about this, but he said, you know, one of the big differences that he saw between his Christian friends and his Buddhist friends was when he would go over to their house for dinner, the Christians... W- what, they had, you know, a piece of meat and, um, you know, butter and, uh, you know, vegetables. It was colorful and a glass of wine or a nice beer. It was really thought out. It was delicious, and uh, he said, and he loved food. Even though he's a Buddhist, you know, he's trying to, you know, rid himself of all desires. He really loved food. And so he loved going to a Christian's house. And he'd go to his Buddhist friend's house, and it was rice and beans with no salt or anything. And they were wearing a you know, potato sack, and their face was all kind of like this. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing my religious duties. And he said, you know, I love, I love going to the Christian's house much more. And what was happening was the, that Buddha, and, you know, it happens in the Buddhist form, it, has, it happens in a Christian form, is I'm going to do my good religious duties... And the tendency is when you're doing all those things, you suck the life out of out of everything. That that's what what a religious life does is it sucks the life out of everything. And uh, there's no joy. There's no playfulness. And there's not even hospitality. You're not even good at being hospitable to people. Giving them a nice piece of meat when they're coming over. You give them you know you give them some bland rice and beans. And you know um, and you know how that is when you meet someone and. They, they go to church, they are diligent reading their Bibles, and you say, gosh, I should, they know way more than I do. They, I should be respecting them, I should be following them. I, I, um, and, yet, um, um, and yet, even though there's this kind of religious life, there's this diligence, there's meticulousness, there's no warmth. There's no compassion, there's no joy, there's no inviting, there's no listening and hearing about your life, there's no understanding that complexity of, of the heart and of sin. And, uh, and what's going on there? Well, Jesus says, this is, what, this is the way Jesus describes that in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. What Jesus says is that a religious person is like a grave, an empty grave, and uh, people are walking and they don't know what's there, and then they fall in the grave. And that's how they they meet religious people and they say, wow, they've got all the good religious things. They should be a good person. I should want to be around them. And yet, it is life-sucking death to to come into their presence. So, so to summarize my first point, what is religion? So, has this warmed you up to religion? Religion is external. Another way to say that is it's hypocrisy. Religion is hypocritical, petty, conceited, life-sucking death. And frighteningly, there is a religious person stirring in each one of us. Uh, This is not some other person that's a religious person. This is us. And the good news is that there is hope for religious people and that Jesus did go have dinner with them and Jesus is talking to them and Jesus is talking to us. So this leads to our second point. How is trusting Jesus different than religion. Now, the most, I thought the most cryptic part of this passage comes in this really fascinating parable about lighting a lamp, uh, starting in verse 33. I'm going to read it again. Let, let's look there, verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who, may, uh, those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Wow. What does that mean? That's a lot of light and lamps. Um, I think, simply put, it means... uh, Light needs to come into your heart. You need to have an eye that lets light in if you are going to become a light. Light needs to come in first before you become a light. And that light needs to come inside. And, um, and one of the things that we might ask is, okay, Jesus is talking about the light. What is the light? What's the light that needs to come in? What is it? Well, in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, there's a scene, I don't know, if you remember the scene in Luke 2 where uh, Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to be dedicated at the temple. And there's this guy, Simeon. He's devout, righteous. He's waiting for, the, uh, for God's plans from the Old Testament to come about. And he takes the baby Jesus in his hands, and he lifts him up. And this is what he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He holds up Jesus and he says, My eyes have seen the light. And he's looking at Jesus and he's holding him. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, Luke, who wrote this gospel, he, he wrote a sequel also called the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, there's a story about a Pharisee. Uh, one of the biggest stories, you know, takes up the biggest chunk of Acts is a story of a Pharisee named Saul who later becomes the Apostle Paul. And it talks about uh, his conversion. How did he go from being a religious person to someone who trusts in Jesus? And it says that as he was on the road to Damascus, a light shone from heaven. And Jesus, you know, kicks him off his, kicks him on the ground and uh, beats him up a little bit. And, and then he's blind for three days. And then uh, his life transforms and he becomes the apostle who writes, uh, you know, 14 or so books of the, of the New Testament. And he has a radical transformation. And later in his life, as Paul, the Pharisee, the religious person, he had books of the Bible memorized. Um, he was very diligent, very meticulous in following God's law, had a transformation. And the way he describes it to Timothy, who's his apprentice in, in 1 Timothy, this is what he says, this is a famous, famous saying of Paul. He's telling Timothy, this is the heart of what I'm passing along to you. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. I'm a sinner who Jesus is showing his patience to as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so the light that sh- sh- that had shone in, uh, into Paul's life was first the light of God's holiness, which showed him that his heart was far more messy and far more uh, uh, full of envy and bitterness than he ever imagined. And yet in Jesus, there was perfect patience. There was mercy. And he found that, and that transformed him. And what happened... Uh, uh, what happened... Uh, to Paul is that he, as he, what that gospel did, is it sent Paul out into the world so that on the one hand he had a tremendous amount of humility, right? He had a humility because he said, "I'm a sinner. You have no idea how m- black and dark my heart is. I'm a sinner." And so he had a humility with people. He wasn't. He didn't have a superiority over people. He was quite humble. He could he could approach all different kinds of people because he knew how sinful he was, and yet on the other hand, he was tr- he had a tremendous amount of confidence. He went out into the world with a, a tremendous boldness because he knew that Jesus', Jesus love uh, was sufficient. He had all things in Christ. And uh, on the one hand, he, you know, on the, on the one hand, uh, his uh, standard of what r- righteousness and holiness was became way higher. Uh, before it was just these externals. Now he knew that God expected his heart. Uh, to love God, to love neighbor. And uh, it was a far more comprehensive and deep understanding of what righteousness was. So he had this far higher standard than he did before. And yet at the same time, uh, he was far more patient with people. He had a higher standard, and yet he was now more patient with people. Because he had known that he was a sinner and that God had shown patience with him. Jesus had shown patience with him and mercy with him. And what, what the gospel did, what the light of the gospel did in Paul's life is it made him into a wonderful and amazing paradox. He became a paradox. He was humble and he was confident. He had a high standard of holiness and he was patient with all people. And why was that? He became a paradox that a religious life could never make in him. And so a religious life, religion is saying, God loves me because I'm good. I will be good and God will love me. If you do that, you become external, petty, petty conceited, and life-sucking death. But the Gospel says that if I'm going to become good, if I'm going to become loving, I first find out that I'm so deeply sinful and that God showed me His love in Christ. And what happens is, what Jesus says in this thing about light, the light goes in and the light becomes comes out, when that truth comes in, that I'm deeply sinful and that God cherishes me and all my sins have been paid for in Jesus, you become radiant. He says your body becomes radiant. You begin to glow. You begin to be warm. You begin to be, become compassion. And this is a radically different picture, is that the gospel is something radically different than religion. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to, is to be sinners who have experienced his perfect patience. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this word. And our hearts, we confess that our hearts don't believe that you are good. Would you show us that uh, you re- accept us as sinners, give us courage uh, to bear our hearts to you, and give us uh, the time, the meditation, and the faith to reflect on your love for us in Jesus that is unchanging, and that he's paid for it all on the cross. And uh, so we thank you that you've not called us to a religious life. We admit that we don't want to live a religious life, and we just we want to be loved by you and be changed by you. And so we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.